Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. So the last station was Bakr. And I know I, I told you all I could take some of your questions. So at the end of this session, I will pause a bit more for some of the questions. I want to go a little bit further, though, in the text, because I'm getting increasingly worried that we have assigned you too much material for me to actually be able to finish. And uh, as you know, I don't really want to leave you this material untaught. Okay. You know, in Hanafi Fiqh, it's allowed to take back a gift. <laughs> so I can always take it back from you if I want. Yes. The gift in Hanafi Mandal. I've heard that's a long discussion. All right. The last stage, number four, when you end, I was mentioning this topic because he's going to talk about this in depth, Imam Ta'ala. And that is that the end involves that you have a 100% attachment to Allah Spanta in your heart and you remain aware of him 100% of the time. This is what Allah Ta'ala described in Quran. These are Quranic states. The sawuf is just a methodology to reach that Quranic state. Just like the Quran talks about tartil, waratil Quran tartila, tajweed is just the name of a methodology to recite Quran with tartil. The word tajweed is nowhere in Quran and hadith, but tartilas, the word tasawuf is nowhere in Quran and hadith, but tazkiyah, kurd, marfat, all those words are there. So what did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say in this ayah? That they are such people that nothing in this world, literally neither trade nor commerce, no trading, buying, selling, no commercial activity, nothing can distract them from the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's the hundred. That's that last stage, the second hundred, keeping that awareness and attachment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is ayin quran That is exactly in Qur'an. And the fact that they're doing tijara and bayah, that's the first hundred. So they're engaged in the world. They're occupied in the world. In fact, they're doing what we would call worldly activity, dunyawi activity, buying, selling, trading, negotiating. Right? That's the first hundred. But la tulhihim, it does not able to distract them. On zikrullah, that's the second hundred. So these are Quranic, the Quran al-Kareem and ayat of Quran is explaining these states of human experience. The sawuf is just a method, not the necessary method. It is a method. Just like any tajweed book is not necessary. But it's a tested, proven, established way at successfully getting correct chronic pronunciation. This is a tested, established, true way to get at those feelings of Qur'an. And that's why Imam Rabbani, when he talks about this fourth stage, he quotes another ayah of Qur'an. Kul hadhi sabili, that say that, oh, this is my path. That I call to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ala basira. Basira means with I have deep insight. So this engagement of the world and the last stage which is baka, which I was telling you is the work of the prophets, it's dawah. This is the way dawah is done in tasawwuf. That a person makes themselves a person of zikr and then they get this connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they bring that connection to do dawah. This is the way Hazrat Mulana Ilyas ta'ala used to make dawah. He was sahib zikr sahib nisbat And today people are actually trying to do dawah without that zikr. It's not possible. <laughs> Just like if I tell you that a great alim, you know, Alama Shami or Imam Shafi, a great alim, he wrote all those books on the basis of his ilm. 
And then somebody says, I want to be like them, but I don't want the ilm. So I said, how can you be like them? How can you do khidmat of deen in the way that they did it without the ilm that they had that enabled them to do khidmat of the deen? Same way, how are you going to do this type of khidmat of deen dawah unless you have that basira? Because that's what the Quran is saying. And another ayah Allah says, وَلَا مَنْ أَغْفَلْنَا قَلْبَهُ أَنْ That you should not follow that person whose heart is empty of dhikr. Should not listen to the dawah of that person whose heart is empty of dhikr. So you have to do both. You have to do both. Alright? So this is the end of the discussion on the chart. Now... Let's, okay, let's go back to the text. Page 181. Okay. Fana, passing away from the self, and Baka, abiding in God. Now again, these are his translations. I don't feel that they, you know, it's very difficult, and it's not the translator's fault. It's very, this is Arabic, one word, Fana. I took a whole concept in two charts to explain that to you. So it's not going to be possible really to find one English word that does justice to that one Arabic word. Sometimes we tell people it's just like you give one dollar and get 85 rupees. So you give one Arabic word and you should get about 85 English words for that. <laughs> it's going to take about 85 English words to explain the one Arabic word. Alright? So for now, passing away from the self. So what, I'm going to explain it to you. Losing awareness of other, everything that is other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Forgetting that knowledge momentarily, temporarily. So you relearn it. Unlearning everything, becoming unaware of everything. And baka, abiding in God. Now that's not, see, we don't want to talk about that because you're not abiding inside Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Baka means, and those of you who know Urdu also know baqi, it means to subsist due to the will and command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to remain. You see, when you're no longer aware of yourself, normally what human beings engage in what is called self-preservation. Right? You're conscious of yourself. You're keeping yourself alive. At that stage of fana, you lose consciousness of your own self. So what is keeping you alive? The will and wish and hukum of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then you realize that even when I was conscious of myself, even then the only thing that was keeping me alive was the will and wish of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I am utterly needy and dependent on Him. My being is dependent on His being. Only His being is independent. Alright? Okay. Man does not become Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's making it clear. Sorry. Fana and baka are experiential, not existential. Now this is one of the most famous things that Imam al-Rabani is known for. And he's written many letters on this topic and I haven't given you them because they're extremely long and detailed and complex. And that is his basic critique of Wahdat al-Wajud that they thought it was Wujudi when it was actually Shahudi. Let me explain. The English here is good. These are the proper philosophical terms for this. Wujudi would be translated as existential and shuhudi would be translated experiential but a good translation doesn't mean you necessarily understand the concept okay so wujudi existential what does it mean means number one that you didn't actual so you can understand in wujud existentially it means in actual reality so in actual reality you have not passed away you're not fun you exist you cannot eliminate your existence you can't do that you can't do that. Even suicide doesn't do that. You are, every human is eternal. It's the wish of Allah Taala. He's created us that way. There's nothing any human being can do. No human being. 
from the very first human of Sayyidina Adam Islam, all the way to whoever the last human being will be no human being has the power and ability to eliminate their existence so in, in reality they cannot cease to exist so if Fana was wujudi if it had been wujudi that's what it would have meant that you actually would be able to erase yourself from existence you can actually become non-existent and then Allah Ta'ala will be the only one that was existent because you had eliminated yourself from existence in your world you would be non-existent and only Allah Ta'ala would be existent so he says that this is not a reality it's not reality, it's not actuality, it's not existential what it is, what is it then? instead it is shuhudi, what does shuhudi mean? experiential, it means it's the perception you go through an experience that makes you perceive as if you don't exist anymore give you an example again of the Sahaba it's not that the arrow stopped to exist, the arrow existed the blood existed, the wound existed it all existed but because he was unaware of it Shuhud, his perception and awareness of it didn't exist, but it existed his perception and awareness of it didn't exist, but it existed so just like in his world of awareness and consciousness he was unaware and not conscious of that arrow just like that a person in zikr and ibadat can become unconscious of their own self I'll give you the opposite right, that you may have been sitting in class and you don't even, you're not even aware of the itch on your nose you start praying, next thing you know right, <laughs> you just lasted two hours completely fine so it's, we're the opposite. We are so engrossed in the dunya that we're unaware. When you are deeply involved in something, you become unaware. Sometimes a person is just thinking. So forget even God. Let me go to a lower faculty, which is the human mind. It's lesser than your spiritual heart, right? Sometimes a person is so lost in thought, they become unaware. They're even, maybe they're pouring, pouring, they're thinking, then juice is coming out. They're looking at it, but they're just, they're so lost in their thoughts. So you say, snap out of it, right? What do you say? Snap out of it. Why? What does it mean snap out of it? Because you got so engrossed in some thought that you become unaware. You're being unaware doesn't mean the thing you're unaware of doesn't stop to exist. It still exists, but your awareness of it stopped to exist. It's shuhudi. So you don't, fanai nafsi doesn't mean that yourself stops to exist. Fanai nafsi means your awareness, perception, shuhud from shahada, right? Testifying, witnessing, right? Your witnessing of yourself stops to exist. Your self-awareness stops to exist. And he says that when these people came up with the doctrine of Wahdud al-Wujud, they misunderstood. Actually, they reached this level where their awareness of their self didn't exist anymore. So they thought that nothing exists except for Allah. And when they reopened their awareness of their self, they perceived their self to be Allah. And that was the mistake they made. Alright, so the mistake they made is that they thought Fana and Baqa were Wujudi, when actually they are Shuhudi. Alright, okay. He explains, go back to the text. A human being does not become Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and is not united with Him because that's what they thought that how do you erase your existence to become one with Allah? So he says that doesn't happen. So the Abd is Abd forever and Allah is Allah forever. Remember the Farq, absolute separation. Abd is always Abd and Allah is always Allah. There's no unity ever. Okay. There are wicked heretics who think that Fana and Baqa are wujudi 
that man discards his ontological limitations and unites with the primal source. So this is, for example, sometimes people of Watu Baju give this example. They say Allah Ta'ala is an ocean and He created everyone out of drops of that ocean. And when we do fana, we drop, we return to that ocean, we become part of that ocean again. Right? And this is also, by the way, what Al-Ghani Ismaili theology teaches. That's what they believe. That's why they don't believe actually in afterlife. They think that they are going to be drops that become reunited with the ocean. So, and this isn't correct. Okay, a human being cannot. What does it mean limitations and determination? This is just a philosophical term. It means you have, limit, you have bodily limitations, spatial limitations. Put it simply, you exist in time and space. Allah Ta'ala exists outside time and space. For you even hypothetically to unite with Him, you would first have to also become a being who transcends time and space, who can go outside space-time, and you can't do that. So he's giving on the side, he's giving a philosophical refutation as well. Alright? A philosophical refutation as well. Alright? And this is the thing that we gave him, like, drop of water, but it loses itself and mingles in the ocean, it casts away, his individuating limitations, it becomes one with the absolute. May Allah Ta'ala save us all from their blasphemous ideas. Real fana, so what is fana then in reality? It's to forget, to be unaware of ghairullah, which is calling not divine in English, to become unaware of ghairullah. To free oneself from love of the world. To purify the heart from all desires and wishes. And when they mean by desires, they mean obviously unlawful desires, right? To purify the heart from all desires and wishes, as is required of a servant. That's what an abd is supposed to do. And in real, so fana is nothing other than ubudiyya. That's what he's trying to say. He said earlier that wilayat was nothing other than ubudiyya. In totality. Then now he's taking each parts of wilayat and showing that's also nothing other than ubudiyya. So fana is nothing other than ubudiyya. And real baka, what is real baka? That is to fulfill the wishes of the Lord. So what does it mean? Now when I, there's another way to understand baka. When I've erased all of my wishes, so how am I existing? Whose wishes am I fulfilling? What's keeping me baki? It's the wishes of Allah Now I feel Allah's wishes. That's why they say in Urdun, Allah ki marzi wo meri marzi bange. They say that now I have no will and wish left. Whatever is the will and wish of Allah, that is my will and wish. That's what's left. That's what's baki. After I erased everything, what is left, just the will and wish that Allah has for me. When I've erased everything and become a pure servant and slave. Remember what I told you? So what is left? Just my slavehood. That's it. That's all that's left. Just my ubudiyat. And so what does an abd do? So like you see in this world again, what does a slave do? Whatever the master tells him. Where does the slave sleep? Wherever the master tells him to sleep. When does the slave get up? Whenever the master tells him to get up. That's what the master does, right? So the master tells you to get up at 4 a.m., you get up at 4 a.m.? So that's how the slave is supposed to be? That's called baka. That now I continue to exist. It's another way to understand baka. Continue to exist. I have not erased my existence. I still exist. But my continuity in existence is only on the will and wish of Allah subhanahu wa I'm just an abd now. That's it. I'm nothing more than an abd. There's nothing I can do. It's not even in me. I can't go against ubudiyat. That's what he means. That's called baka. So the real baka is to fulfill the wishes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to make his will one's own will without losing one's self-identity. This is the key thing. What is he trying to say? This is the beauty of it. This is submission. This is the slim. This is Islam. That you're still, you're still who you are. You're still who you are. But who, so you are still you, but who you become is a person who only does what Allah Ta'ala wishes. 
So that's you, that's why you get the salab. It's you who will only now to will what Allah wills for you. It's you. You wish only what Allah wishes for you. That's what Allah Ta'ala has put us on earth for. Not to lose our self-identity, to maintain that self-identity, but to erase anything in that identity that goes against the wish of Allah. And then once we do that, that's fana. Once we do that, then to continue to exist until death overcomes us, baka, only and only doing what is the wish and will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Retaining our self-identity. Alright? Okay. Next, in the writings of some Sufis, right, so after explaining it, he does keep mentioning that, look, some of the writings of some of the Mashaikh of the Sawaf seem to suggest otherwise, right? So he talks about that. Even some of the writings of the rightly guided Mashaikh of the Sawaf sometimes seem to suggest otherwise. So he's going to talk about that. In the writings of some Sufis, one comes across words like mahaf. Mahab means to erase or efface. And izmihlal, which means, yeah, you can say dissolution. It means, yeah, to dissolve, right? Basically to just fade away, to wither away. What they really mean by these words is, he's using the word visual. I wouldn't use the word visual. It would, I would stick to the word experiential. Experiential effacement, not existential effacement. It doesn't mean they literally become erased from the map of the earth, right? It doesn't really mean that. It means their own will and wishes become erased. All right? The identity of the person of the soul disappears only from his vision. It is never abolished in reality. Now what does he mean now? He's talking about when a person is really deep into that zikr. Like again, think of the dream. So when you're in the dream, you forget who you are, right? But you're still you're, still you, aren't you? In the dream-like state, your experiences in the dream are so overpowering that they can even make you forget who you are in reality, right? They make you forget who you really are. But in actuality, you are still who you really are. You don't stop being you, you're still you. It's still you that's dreaming. So the same thing in dhikr, sometimes a person has an overpowering experience in dhikr, that they forget who they are. They have an overpowering experience in ibadah. Some people when they go to Kaaba and do Tawaf, they forget everything. They don't, they don't remember, they're just lost. They don't remember who they are, where they are, they're from Pakistan, they're from Syria, they're from Indonesia, they're a father, they're a mother, they're a daughter, they're all of, it's gone, all their identity, all the identities are gone. They don't remember their national identity, they don't remember their family identity, their professional identity, at that moment it's completely outside their consciousness if they're a computer programmer, if they're a teacher, right? That's what it means to efface, in reality he is a father, in reality she is a mother, she can't erase that reality. But she's entered a state now where she's unaware of this. She's not conscious of that identity. I mean, normally a mother can never forget her children, but a woman could be so lost in Ibadah that she can actually forget the children. It doesn't mean neglect, right? We're not talking about neglect, but you understand what I'm saying? She can enter a certain state that is so overpowering that all other aspects of her identity are gone. The only identity that remains is that she's an Abd. That's what he's talking about. All right? So it only disappears from his vision. By vision he means by his perception. Perception, awareness. Right? It is never abolished in reality. He doesn't stop being who he is. In fact, to believe in the latter, to believe that he actually stops being who he is, that's heretical and wicked. A number of amateur Sufis have interpreted these misleading words to mean existential dissolution and have been guilty of blasphemy. They have denied punishment and reward in the hereafter. So what did they do? They said that, look, there is no real punishment in Jahannam, and there's no real reward in the Akhirah. 
Because they said you just go back to becoming one with Allah SWT. To use this here, they believed as they had once proceeded from unity to multiplicity. So for example, I mean, these people, they misinterpret verses. So they say, inna lillahi wa inna rajun. See Allah said in Quran, we are from Allah and to Allah we are going back. So this how they interpret it, is that we are literally pieces of Allah and we go back to Him. So Imam Rabbani was making clear, this is wrong. This is wrong. Right? You are from Allah, what does that mean? That you came, your ruh came into earth from the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Your body was created by your mother and father. Your ruh was created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly. And this, if any of you have heard me before, you know we mentioned this many times. Allah ta'ala mentions in the Quran that He gathered all the arwah, all of the human ruhs, and He asked them, Allah stubi rabbikum. And they all said, Qalu bala, they all said, yes, this is Quran. And then every time somebody is conceived in the womb of a woman, then Allah Ta'ala sends that ruh in after, after the conception. The ruh was there before. So where was the ruh existing before it came into your physical body, fetus in your womb? The ruh was with Allah. That's where it was. So that's inna lillahi wa inna rajun. We're all going back to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. That's clear. Back to and entering in are two separate things. Alright? So then he says, right, and this is also uh, important to show you uh, what Imam Rabbanath's method is. Oh, sorry, some of these misguided people have upheld this dissolution of the great resurrection and denied real resurrection, judgment, bridge, and balance. They deny all these things. They say there's no pulsarat, there's no mizan, there's no yom al-qiyamah. It's just reuniting with them. They've gone astray and they've led a lot of people astray. They've gone astray and led all the people astray. I saw one of them citing in support of his view the following couplet of Abdurrahman Jami, who is an authentic and great scholar and great uh, sheikh of the Sawaf. Jami, our origin as well as our end is unity. And nothing else, we live amidst a multiplicity which is false and unreal. So Imam Rabbani explains, and this is exactly you're going to see an example, that sometimes these mashaikh of the Sawaf made statements that number one could be interpreted incorrectly, and number two, more importantly and more dangerously sometimes, and you're going to see an example of that, is that they meant it metaphorically. But if you take it literally, they meant it metaphorically, figuratively, but if you take it literally, which most people would normally do, most people take a person's words at their face value, if you take it literally, then actually it's, it's suggesting an incorrect belief. So how does Imam Rabbani handle this? He says that he does not know what Jami really means by return to unity is a return in vision and experience only. In other words, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are beginning when we were in alam arwah when we were in ruh form, before you put us in our body when we were in the womb of our mother, at that moment our ruh, the only thing it was aware of was of you. The only thing our ruh perceived was you. And now we have been put in this world and now we're perceiving all these multiple realities. Right? But when we go back into Akhirah again, we will be given again the ru'yat and the perception of you. That's what he meant. Alright? That's what he meant. So Jami never means the existential return. Does not mean that you will physically become one with Allah subhanahu wa These people are just blind. They do not see that. No matter how perfect one becomes, one cannot transcend their humanity. If nothing else, your very humanity will prevent you from becoming one with Allah subhanahu wa Human limitations, imperfections, sufficiency, etc. Hence, ontological return of multiplicity to unity makes no sense. If they think that it would happen after death, they are infidels. They deny the reality of punishment in the hereafter, and they falsify the teachings of the prophets. All right. Okay, page one eighty-six. 
You may remember earlier that Imam Rabbanatha mentioned that sometimes when a Sufi is in the state of ecstasy, he makes an utterance. Okay. These are called shathat, sometimes they're called shathiyat. In English, we would call this an utterance. An utterance. Why are we calling it an utterance? It means that something somebody says uncontrollably. Not words that are said with deliberation. Not words that articulate somebody's aqidah or theology. Words that erupt out of a person's mouth when they're in a state of intoxication. I discussed that intoxication again. When their perception of reality is skewed. The statement they say when their perception of reality is skewed because they were overcome by a particular feeling that happened to them in some type of ibadah, some type of zikr. Right? It doesn't, it's not meant to be taken literally. I'll give you examples of this from Hadith. Sayyidina Hanzala, radiallahu great Sahaba, he starts running around like a madman. Literally, that's what that he says. He starts running around in a frenzy. And what is he saying? Nafaka Hanzala, Nafaka Hanzala. At that moment when he was saying those words, he was not making an Akidah statement that I've become a Munafik. Because in Akidah, the Munafik is that person who has 100% Kufr in his heart, but claims 100% Iman with his tongue. A Munafik, the Quranic definition of Munafik, were those people who genuinely disbelieved. They truly were atheists. They didn't believe in Allah SWT in their heart. But they pretended to believe on their tongue. So Sayyidina Hanza is not saying he's become like that. He's not saying I stopped believing. That's not what he meant. And everybody knows that. No commentator of Hadith has ever suggested that these words should be taken literally. So the question arises, is it okay, what was it that made him say words that shouldn't be taken literally, but that are meant to be taken figuratively? Because he was overpowered by an emotional state. What was that emotional state? And so later on in the Hadith, he, when he goes to the Prophet and explains, his emotional state was that he realized that, oh, through someone I'm with you, I'm in one way, and when I'm separate from you, my spirituality goes down. And I, this loss of spirituality that happens to me when I'm away from you, compared to when I'm with you, that feeling, that loss has just overpowered me. And that's why I was running around saying, Nafakanzala, Nafakanzala. So it's not an accurate description of that person's reality. It's an emotional statement they're saying when they're overpowered by feelings. So this happened even to Sahaba Ikram in the time of Sayyidina Rasulullah Just like Sayyidina Hanzala never even had the slightest drop of nifaq in him even for the smallest fraction of a second. Just like that when some of these people in the Tasawwuf said something, they were not even in the slightest of drop, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they were not united with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in the slightest of drops, even for the fraction of a second. Alright. So, an example of this he gives you on the top of 186. I know you don't have the complete thing, but it's sort of a cutoff. It's, it's coming through from another letter, but since it's there, I'm going to do it for you. So, just skip the first two words. Glory be to me. Alright, now who said this right? Abu Yazid al-Bustami. So he said, glory be to me. So normally he says, subhanallah. Right? He said, subhan to himself. So the question is that if you look at these words technically, right? If you look at, take these words again at the surface value, then this would be an incorrect statement. Because that's something that we only say for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? 
Now, in one sense, right now, how would this operate? So, if you were looking at this as a scholar of Aqidah and Kalam, you would immediately get him off the hook of Kufr anyway. Because these are actually, they are words that you can use, even if it may not be appropriate, that you could use them for Ghairullah. For example, right, we say, so what is this thing? We say, Subhanallah, Walhamdulillah, 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 right? So, Alhamdulillah means praises to Allah alone. But many times you praise somebody, you say, you praise someone, you did a really good job. You tell somebody, oh, he was saying such high praises of you. Now, it doesn't mean that that person's going against, alhamdulillah. Or let's say, Allahu Akbar, sometimes you say, oh, great job. You have to use that word. You use the word great. Use the word great for somebody. It doesn't mean you're going into Allahu Akbar, right? So, theologian will get him off the hook doing that method of husna, as I told you before. But he, being the honest, the honest, so that was the, that was the fair reading, right? If you take the honest reading, the honest reading, however, is that, Shaykh Bayezid Bustamirimullah, at that moment, something was happening to him, right? That he said this statement. So the honest reading would be, let's try to understand what exactly was happening to him. What was that emotion that he was feeling that made him say this? So that's what Imam Rabbani tries to do, right? He takes the honest reading just to understand what was the experience that was going on in the Tasawwuf. So... Uh, Sorry, if you skip this, it's a little bit tanzi and tashbih, and I don't want to sort of add more concepts to you, because I think you already have enough on your play from what we did before Zohar, right? So our, our Cambridge fellow who's come, I can't remember his name, but uh, a lot of what I'm doing now presumes uh, understanding of what I did from 10 a.m. till now, all right? Kya naam thaamka? Khuram? Mukaram? Yes, yes, yes. Huh? Fessel? Fessel. Yeah. All right. So, and anybody, I just noticed him because I've met him before. There are a couple of other of you, but I don't know who you are, so I can't single you out like I did him. But anybody who came after the lunch break, uh, your understanding of some of these things is going to be impaired, right? Because it's predicated on what we did in the morning. All right. So Imam Rabbani continues, and I, however, think that Abu Yazid was informed of his shortcoming towards the end of his life. <laughs> For at the time of his passing away, he said that I did not know you except after an unknowing. Remember this whole concept of learn and unlearn. And I did not serve you except after the lapse of a period. So what he's saying is that actually Abu Zid Bustami realized that I went into this phase where I actually made a mistake in terms of my knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I had to unknow, I had to unlearn, I had to make tawbah, make istighfar for that. Right? And then when I did that, I got the true knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright? Okay. And then he explains, the Imam Rabbani himself commenting, he thus considered his first awareness of God a non-awareness. For it was not the awareness of Allah's power, but the awareness of one of Allah's shadows and appearances. Let me explain what this means. He uses the term shadow and appearance is not a good translation for this. Okay now, Allah's power and the world are separate, right? I told you this is what Imam Rabbani takes. Wrong position, Allah and the world are the same. Second wrong position that the world is a shadow of Allah. So he says the correct position is that Allah is completely separate and the world is completely separate. In terms of their distinct and completely distinct and different and separate entities. But there is a relationship between the two. Right? And this is what is called the relationship of Allah subhanahu to the world. This is the hidayah he sends on the world. These are the books he sends on the world. These are the prophets he sends on the world. This is the ilham he sends to individuals. This is the madad, nusrat. So many words in Quran that Allah tells use for this. His fazl, his fez, 
his karam, his rahmah, so many things that he sends. So then in Arabic they have different words, just to, just they've come up with different one words to encompass all of these things, which are the relationship or the things that Allah Ta'ala sends on this world. For example, one is waridat, one is tajliyat, one is shuyunat, one is ittibarat. All of it means is that the way Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala relates with the world. Because although he is completely different from the world, but he's not uninterested in it. He's not an absent Lord. He's completely dynamically focused on and engaged in that world. And those engagements and those interactions and that relationship, right? Uh, that is what Imam Rabbani says is, is, a, is a shadow. That sometimes a person sees something and that's not Allah SWT. That may be the mercy of Allah. That may have been the fazl of Allah. That may have been the karam of Allah. That may have been the nur of the hidayah of Allah. It wasn't the nur of Allah. So for example, Allah uses this metaphor, very famous ayah. They call it ayat nur And so many commentators have tried to comment on it. Right? And Allah gives this whole long simile of the nur and the lamp and the lantern and the niche. Right? Now Allah spelled on the one hand, Allah didn't need to say this. There was, Allah did not need to say this. There must be some reason he said that. There must be some reason that he is likening using this example of nur. Right? But that doesn't mean that every time, because Allah also uses the metaphor of nur in Quran, he uses it for himself, he also uses it for his hidayah. He also uses it for his hidayah. So the nur of the hidayah is a shadow of the nur of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what he means when he talks about shadows. Alright? Okay. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is beyond everything. Shadows and appearances mark the beginning of the way. They are only aids and means. Alright. Next letter. Praise be to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and peace be upon His chosen people. I received your letter which tells you of your commendable attainments. I was very much pleased to read it. So he's, this is obviously a letter written in response to somebody's earlier letter. And the path of love in this path of muhabba. A lot of strange experiences happen. You must pass over those experiences and changes and try to reach that one being, Allah SWT, who produces those states. By reach, by the way, doesn't mean union. Reach means qurb, right? So this is a word again in the Quran, that you don't want to be close to your own spiritual state. You want to be close to Allah SWT, who produced that state on you. Okay, let me show you from Quran that these states exist. So Allah Ta'ala says in Quran, فَذْكُرُونِي أَذْكُرْكُمْ Make zikr of me. I, Allah Ta'ala says in Quran, I will make zikr of you. Now when a person does so much zikr, that means Allah Ta'ala is going to be doing so much zikr of them. You think a person is not going to feel that? So that feeling, a person experiences, so when Allah Ta'ala does أَذْكُرْكُمْ as He promises in Quran, when Allah Ta'ala does zikr of someone, that someone feels something. Now they're not able to explain properly in words what that feeling is. They can construct a whole set of vocabulary and terminology, like I told you, tijaliyat, anwarat, fuyuzat, waridat, to explain that zikr that Allah Ta'ala is doing on them. They can't explain it in words properly. That, however, is an existential reality. That's a real, real thing. Allah Ta'ala really does zikr of a person. He really does it, because He said it in the Quran. And a person will really feel it. Now they may not understand that feeling sometimes. They may not be able to express that feeling in words sometimes because feelings and words are two separate things. Feelings cannot always be expressed in words. 
For example, Imam Ghazali loves to give the example of fruit. If I give the example of a mango, can you really express how a mango tastes in words? You can't. I could say it's soft, succulent, sweet, juicy, fleshy, but let's say somebody has never eaten a mango, right? Those words could give them an approximation of that feeling, but they can never capture the feeling of taste. So if something so mundane as your tongue and something so low as just the feeling of what a fruit tastes like on your tongue, even that cannot be captured in words. Then when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does or when He says in Quran, Mayyumin billahi yahdi kalbahu, that He sends a hidayah in a person's kalb, so you don't think the kalb has a sense of taste? Just like if a mango comes on your tongue, your tongue can experience it. If the hidayah and zikr of Allah come on your heart, your heart won't experience it? Of course it experiences it. But just like this one cannot be perfectly captured in words, this one can also not be perfectly captured in words. And now a big problem, and this is why I told you why we don't normally like to read or teach the text of the Zohar, is a person who's never felt it, they're looking at the words, and they're trying to understand. I'm saying this because you're going to see, he's going to talk about a particular feeling in the next letter. And you'll, you'll never be able to understand by the words. You'll never understand. My only aim today is to make sure you don't misunderstand. <laughs> to help people and prevent people from misunderstanding the words of the Zohar. You can never understand the words of the soul through words. You'll only understand the words of the soul through feelings. For example, if, if you have tasted a mango, and I was to write you, I don't know, let's say I was a brilliant poet, and I wrote you a poem on the mango, you, could, you, could, you would enjoy every line. You'd understand that, oh yeah, the word succulent, you, immediately you, you, you could feel it. I say the word succulent, the experience of the mango taste comes to your mind. I say the word tasty, it comes to your mind. I say the word sweet, it comes to your mind. The word sweet... Because you've experienced sweetness, the language, the word sweet, produces an understanding in your mind. Not because of the word, but because you experience sweetness. Just like that, when they're going to say words here, Imam al-Rabani was writing to people who had experienced these realities. So the word is just a marker, and this is all philosophy language teaches anyway. A word is just a marker or placeholder for meaning. And the person who knows the meaning understands the meaning from the word. You all know the difference in how orange juice and apple juice taste. You know that because you both drink all, I'm pretty sure almost all of you or all of you have drank both. So I just say the word orange juice and apple juice, you immediately understand the difference. If I tell you, if I tell you ikhlas and tobacco, those are also two words. Can, do you know what the different feelings are? You won't know. Unless you've experienced them. Alright? Okay. So now we're just going to say, in this path of love, a lot of strange experiences happen. Because Allah Ta'ala is an amazing being. When He does zikr of a person, it's going to be wondrous. That's really the word that He's using for strange. You know, you have this word in Arabic and Urdu, Ajib. Ajib really means wondrous, amazing, mind-boggling, inexplicable, not capturable in words. And that's going to happen when Allah Ta'ala does zikr of a person. Guaranteed. Because Allah is Allah. Right? Okay. If after that you are given true knowledge, you would be really fortunate. Mind one thing. Now watch what he tells that person. Negate everything that comes to you in vision and understanding. All your feelings, inspirations, kefiyat, ahwal, kash, ilham, negate all of it. This is one of the highest teachings of Imam al-Nabayn. He says that's also ghairullah. Everything is ghairullah. 
your own kashf, your own ilham, your own kifiyat, your own ahwal, your own feelings, states, stations, experiences, all of that is also here. You know, and today people don't understand that. And sometimes there are some reads who are so into the experiences that the shaykh produces in them. You know, I once, I w- was visiting somewhere recently, and within one minute the person just started telling me, oh, that's all he wanted to talk about. That my shaykh is this and that, and he produces this feeling and this piece of feeling in a person's heart. And he didn't realize that these are the Lord, these are like the baby things of the Sawaf. But for this person's understanding, he thought this was the height of the Sawaf. That when my shaykh did zikr, so-and-so cried. When my shaykh did zikr, so-and-so said, I felt something in my heart like I've never felt before. So this was like, this is like the elementary stuff of the Sawaf. But they couldn't get over it. They couldn't get over that. And that's it. And then this, this causes a problem. And people don't understand that Shaykh was the person who was supposed to give you taqwa. They thought Shaykh is the person who was supposed to give me spiritual feeling. And so now they run around looking for feelings. And then, then, then what happens is then all of a sudden they stop feeling the feelings from one person. Then they go to a second one, then he makes them feel the feelings. Then they go to a third one, then they go to a fourth one, then they go to a fifth one. Then they're just like, you know, spiritual groupies. They're, I don't know if you have that term in British English. They're just, you know, running around looking for one, one thing to another. They don't understand. Right? And you know, I always see them in the beyond. They're always the ones who sit in the back and they're, they're not listening to me. And they're not looking at me. They're listening to and looking at the crowd. And that's how they, they decide whether they like the beyond or not. They look at the crowd reaction. Right? How many people, you know, felt this way and how many people felt that way. They, they don't understand what deen is about. So these feelings, yes, it happens to a person. A person gets feel obviously. We are emotional creatures. And Allah Ta'ala structured the deen in such a way that it will move you and motivate you emotionally. But all of that is for ubudiyyah. All of that is to become the servant and slave of Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. Alright. So negate all that comes to your vision and understanding. Even if it is the vision of unity and multiplicity. For the real unity does not appear multiplicity. Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala's wahdaniyyah is never going to be contained in the multiplicity of this world. Never. Allah subhanahu wa wahdaniya is something completely separate. Has nothing to do with this world. What actually appears is a reflection that we are all His creation. So when you see a unity in the creation, you're just looking at the fact that we're all His creation. You're not perceiving the wahdaniya of Allah Ta'ala Himself, the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Himself. The singularity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Himself, you cannot witness that in this world. So the best thing for you at this stage is to repeat the words, La ilaha illallah. This is the great... Kalima of Tawheed, right? That there's no, nothing you need to know more about Tawheed other than this. And this is why Imam Rabbayant used to teach, instead of starting with zikr la ilaha illallah, for example, in Sisi Sussla and other Sussla's, the first zikr they give a person is la ilaha illallah. In Naqshbani Sussla, the first zikr they give a person is what we call ismizat, zikr of Allah Allah. So that a person, right, is getting that love for Allah Subhanahu in their heart. And they're getting detached from the love of the world. But then in that process, what happens is when they have the love for Allah Subhanahu they have these feelings and experiences, right? So he waits. And then when a person has taken out all of love for the world from their heart, and is filled to the brim with love for Allah, but because of that, then you can imagine a person like they would have a lot of emotional experiences, then he tells them to do La ilaha illallah to wipe off all those emotional experiences. So that you shouldn't feel emotional ecstasies. You should just have the pure servanthood love for Allah Subhanahu So when a person reaches that, so this person has obviously written him, right? That he had all these experiences and this and that. So now he's giving him then the punchline. 
Okay, now you're having experiences. Oh, you wrote me a letter. Okay, I commend you. Okay, mashallah, you've lost your love for the world. You have love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You're following Sharia. You're regular in Tajjud. Oh, so you felt you felt some itmanan in your zikr. Or you're saying you felt wajidat kulubuhum. You're saying you got tahadruk. You're saying you got hararat. Okay, now what you should do, la ilaha illallah. Take the sword of la ilaha illallah and you run it on all of those experiences. Or you say you got a vision. Or you had a dream. Right? And the Marines, they love, they love the Shaykh who tells them, oh, they, this is not the letter they want. This is not the letter that today's Marines want. He wants, oh, mashallah, you had such a great dream. You have such a high Rahani maqam. Oh, you're such an elevated person. That's what the Marines wants. That's what they love. Imam Rabbani, no. Allah Akbar. Okay. Alright. Do la ilaha illallah. Keep doing it. You should go on repeating this kalima till nothing is left of your ilham. Finish it. Allahu Akbar. Finish it. Till you come to hayrat, an unknowing jahil. You think you got marifat of Allah, become a jahil. That's what he's saying. You think you know Allah, right? Oh, no, 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 no. Say, keep saying la ilallah, you will realize that you're completely ignorant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's exactly again the same thing Imam al-Ghazairi wrote in his risala, fi bi'an marifatillah. And he said that knowing Allah is to know that He is unknowable. Knowing Allah is to know that you can never know Him. To ultimately know Allah is to know that you can ultimately never know Him. To ultimately know Allah is to know that He is ultimately unknowable. This is called ajz, to be ajz. Real ajz is real marifa. And real marifa is real ajz. So, and, and, then, and then the only experience that you feel, this is what He calls hayra. So this is the word, we cannot understand this word, this is the feeling. Hayra, the only thing you're left with is complete awe, amazement, wonder at Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's it. That's what, that's what you'll be left with. You will just be awestruck by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what, that's tonight in the Bayan tonight of Maghrib, right? Azmat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's His majesty, His greatness, His might and His power. Leaves a person humbled and completely awestruck. So when you have that, right? So and says, unless you reach wonder and unknowing, unless you reach that, you will not attain a fana. So he's saying fana doesn't mean you know Allah Subhanahu wa Taala intimately. Fana means that you know yourself intimately that you can never know Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. He is his reality is unknowable to you, and you are just lost in a state of wonder and amazement at Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. So what you think to be fana is actually nothing, nothingness. It is certainly not fana. So first reach unknowing, then you will realize fana. This is the first step of the way. And they said, don't think of arriving at Allah or meeting Allah. They are not yet in sight. And then he quotes a poet, how can you reach Su'ad? There are mountains in the way and high peaks and deep ditches. So he says to him, your experiences are right. It's good that you wrote. And we don't know what he wrote, right? But I'm just assuming that he wrote things that, okay, I'm feeling this. And you have feelings. You will have feelings on the path. You will have feelings when you fall in love with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You will have feelings. You will have experiences. They're correct. There's nothing against sharia in them. That's what he's giving him. The clear. That okay, look, there wasn't anything against sharia. But even when you have experiences and ilham that fall within the bounds of sharia, even then you should negate that with kalima la ilaha illallah. That's how you go to the next level. That's what he's teaching. Alright? So you are getting a very inside look into sort of this advanced sort of teaching of the Sawyer and Imam al-Rabbani al 
So, but you must go beyond those experiences. Blessed are those who follow the guidance and walk on the path of the Prophet And that was again to come out of all those experiences and do the work of Dawah, the work of Khidmat, the work of Ihya'ad-Din, Tajdeed-Din, Khidmat of Deen. My second advice to you, so this was his first advice, that negate your experiences, visions, or within Sharia, but you should negate them all. Second advice to you is to stick firmly to Sharia and judge all your experiences that you have had and may have in the future on the principles of Sharia. If you feel any slightest disparity in word or deed with Sharia, you should fear that it may be your undoing. Your entire, you will lose everything. This is the way the Sufis were rightly established. That they do these two things. And my best wishes to you. Alright? Okay. Next. Ever-changing states and experiences are not to be relied upon. What he's saying is that, look, you experience these are called hal and kefiyat in Arabic. Ahwal and kefiyat. So those are momentary. You're not always going to feel like that. You're not always going to have that particular feeling in zikr. You're not always going to cry every time you read that verse. So yes, you cried this time that you read that verse. It's a good thing, but don't get attached to that. Don't celebrate it. Don't inside be so happy that look at me, I'm crying on Quran. Because it's not going to happen to you every time you read that verse. So don't get attached to experiences and feelings that are just fleeting, are momentary, are occasional. Don't care for what comes and goes, what is said and heard. The goal is altogether different. The goal is altogether different. It transcends whatever you hear or see. The goal of the Sawaf is not something that can be heard, seen, felt or experienced. Because the goal of the Sawaf is to make yourself the slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These things are just like sweets or cookies to please the children of Saluk. That's what he says. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does it, right, to keep you going. So he, he gives you tawfiq. It's his tawfiq. It's his grace and success and favor and mercy that he made you cry when you read that verse. But that was to make you read more. That wasn't to make you now focus on my crying. And think about it. You were focused on Quran and you were then able to cry. Then instead you shifted your focus to your crying. You left Quran for such a small thing. Your own tears. Right? And sometimes we do that. Right? I mean this is especially people who do do zikr. And they do get feelings. You will get feelings. You will feel feelings of taqwa. You will feel feelings of sabr, but you look sahab akram, they never thought Sayyidina Umar and his life story is full of two things. Full of his own taqwa. And full of how to the end of his life he never felt he had taqwa. <laughs> they had the feelings, but they were always negating the feelings. That's exactly what sahaba were. This is exactly describing what the sahaba were like. They felt all these feelings. But they didn't revel in them, they didn't chase them, they were unaware, they just kept negating it. Kept thinking, I'm nothing, Allah's everything, I'm nothing, Allah's everything, I'm nothing, Allah's everything. That was their whole life. And if you look at it, great Mufassireen, Muhaddisin, Fuqaha, Usuleen, Mujtahideen, the Awliya, Kamilin, Siddiqeen, Salihin, you find exactly the same thing. You read about them, especially towards the end of the acting as if they never had a moment of taqwa in their life, they're so terrified. Talking about themselves as if they are truly nothing. Although in our eyes, we and they were amazing. But they weren't faking that humility. That was really, the, that was the type of human being they were. That despite all those feelings, they felt, viewed themselves to be nothing. They felt the feelings of tawakkul. They felt the feelings of sabr. They felt the feelings of shukr. They felt the feelings of ikhlas. They felt all of the sifat and mu'mineen mentioned in Quran. But they still view themselves to be nothing. 
In today's Sufi, he doesn't feel any of them. And he gets one, one, he can pray tahajjud one night. And he thinks he's like on cloud nine. One day, once his shaykh may say something that moves his heart. And next time he meets anyone, it's to tell the whole world, my shaykh can move people's hearts. Right? Allah Akbar. <laughs> so the real thing is to seek is different from these petty things. Allahu Akbar. He's calling ahwal and kafiyat petty. He was doing it to train the person. Right? Train the person that don't get too caught up in these things. Don't get too caught up in these things. Because they're unrealist in a dream. If in a dream you see that you're a king, you do not become a king. If in you're in a dream, you see that you're a king, you're not becoming. This is why, and I don't know this, but maybe Mufti Zahir can help us with this Punjabi and Saraiki poetry. But you know, one wali, he used to address himself, that if you wake up in the night, why do you celebrate yourself? Don't you see the dogs and the animals themselves? They're awake also. <laughs> What's the big thing in you? So you're up every night, you pray Tajj every so the rooster is up every day at Tajj as well. What are you? You're a rooster? <laughs> That's how they used to think about themselves. They wouldn't let... Their ibadat and a'mal make them think highly of themselves at all. They wouldn't let the feelings that they experienced in their ibadat and a'mal make them something. This is real humility. Imagine, we don't even have, we don't have those feelings and we still can't be humble. And those people were humble in despite of their feelings and accomplishments. Alright? So the dream offers hope, it's a promise. That's why you do get the feeling. Because Allah wants to give you an enticement. He wants to give you a hope. He wants to give you, spur you on. So in the Naqshbandi Tariqa, visions and experiences not to be counted. You will find this couplet in their books is sometimes the Mashaik of the Sulsaq. You explain it this way. I love the sun, I sing of the sun. I'm not night, nor do I love night, so I never talk of dreams. In other words, the dreams and the feelings take place in the night. But what a person is in love with is the sun. The sun is symbolic for the nur and the, the majesty of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? So because you love the sun, you wouldn't even talk about the things that happened to you in the night. So if one state comes and the other goes, there is nothing to be sorry for, nothing to be happy over. This is an important teaching that the Mashaik used to teach that some people, when they did zikr, they feel something. Next day they do zikr, they don't feel like they used to get sad. So he's saying that happiness and sadness is not about feeling or not feeling. Happiness should be, today was according to Sharia. Sadness should be, today I slipped and I made a sin against Sharia. That's something to be sad over. And you, you find, we find, really, practitioners of the Sobhav are less sad over the sins, and they're more sad that they don't feel. They're less likely to send an SMS that they miss Fajr. They're more likely to send an SMS, I did zikr today and I didn't feel anything. Please make dua for me. They're worried about that, right? But when they made the sin, they're not worried about that. <laughs> hmm? All right? Okay. Okay, let me pause here, because I did say I would take some, so some of your questions... So we're going to have basically two conditions on the questions, and that's it. The first condition is that only the people who have been here since 10.30 a.m. can ask questions. <laughs> right? And second, uh, that you should ask questions on the things I've taught up till now. I know you may still have a lot of questions on the SOWF generally, and I can't teach you off the SOWF in one day. Right? Uh, and for many of you, actually, I mean, I empathize with a lot of you because... Uh, most likely, other than a handful of you, you probably had absolutely no idea whatsoever is in Maktubat al-Rabani. So you may not have actually maybe signed up for all this theoretical intensive stuff, but I wanted to show you 
that you know sometimes when you see something in its full force, it makes you appreciate it. And maybe sometimes to people to appreciate the sawwuf is to actually see it in its full force. Even though we may not be able to experience that, it may not be our level yet to experience it in our full force for ourselves. But what is going on? I mean, look, can you even imagine? We'd be lucky to even have the experiences this person wrote about, let alone moving to that stage that we're going to negate those feelings with la ilaha illallah, right? There'd be very few people alive today probably who have even had the experiences that probably he wrote about in the first letter, right? But it just shows you how deep this deen is and how deep these people were, right? And if we really want to understand and appreciate any person or any field or any discipline of learning, sometimes, not the only way, but sometimes you have to look at the accomplishments of excellence in that field. So the one way to understand physics is to look at basic elementary stuff or first year university stuff. And one way is to get a little glimpse as to what Einstein relativity is about. And then you'll be amazed about this physics right? that physics is actually something quite phenomenal. It's actually something quite phenomenal. It's not something trivial. So the deen, the power of deen of Islam to make a human being even on earth close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's the real power of deen. People today want to, we want to revive the economic power of deen and political power of deen. You've underestimated the spiritual power of deen. You don't know what power Allah Ta'ala has put in Quran and Sunnah, what type of human being can be created by this deen. So when we get a glimpse into some of these people who are like that and how they were working and training and trying to create people who were like that, we get quite amazed. Alright. Open floor for the boys. And the women can maybe either SMS their husbands or I don't know how far they are or they can send something. Okay, it's difficult for me to comment on any particular person and their own specific individual experiences. But I will tell you that, you know, uh, and so what I, the reason I'm saying what I'm saying right now is not necessarily true for your friends. So let's just leave him out for the moment. We'll, we'll leave him out entirely. Okay? You know, everything in Deen of Islam... I think we are living in a day and age in this ummah where there is no single aspect of Islam that has not been misunderstood. You will find people who misunderstand every single thing. Whether it's something is what for we will be clear-cut prohibition of interest, people even misunderstand that. And some of them think that's okay, right? So when it comes to, I mean, even, even in terms of faraiz and haram, even complete black and white cases, right? People have misunderstood those things. So when it comes to stuff like this, a lot of people have a lot of misunderstandings. Now my own experience has been that sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests a person who has such a misunderstanding, and sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can also punish such a person who has such a misunderstanding by making that misunderstanding appear to be true. So Allah Ta'ala explains this in Quran that He has this ability, you see, Yahdi and Yudillu. He guides and he also misguides. So what does it mean for Allah Ta'ala to misguide? So a lot of the Mufassirun have written detail on this because it's a very important concept, right? And it's also that something that comes up in the whole free will predestination debate because how much free will do you have if Allah Ta'ala misguides you? So I myself, when I was in college, I wrote a paper on this. And I gathered all of the ayat in the Quran where Allah Ta'ala uses this construct where he misguides. And when I did that study, I saw that every single time Allah Ta'ala talks about misguiding, He's talking about misguiding someone further who has chosen already to be misguided and has refused repeated calls to come back to the path. So sometimes in that case, Allah makes things happen. It can be tarot cards, it can be palm reading, it can be quote-unquote reading the future. He actually, he actually tells them. 
actually tells them it's actually misguidance, so it's not a source of guidance. So my point was that being correct and incorrect is not necessarily a, a, a way that we can measure whether somebody is rightly guided or incorrectly guided. All right. Second thing is that it's so then obviously there are people who will couch or try to explain their visions and their experiences in the authentic language of visions and experiences, and it's difficult to tell, right? So as far as we are concerned, you don't really need to know about anybody else's visions and experiences. It's irrelevant to us, because it's not going to help us in our life following the Sunnah and Sharia. Anybody who themselves feels that I, have, I, I saw something in a dream and it came true a month later, obviously that's something that would disturb a person or would make a person want to ask. So that person should go and ask somebody who they believe is authentic and capable of guiding them, and they should seek guidance on that, and how should their response be to that. Because if that genuinely happens in a person, every time they dream, they're going to get worried, and it's going to come true or not, and it could lead to whole sort of psychological, emotional tensions, right? So that person should himself seek guidance. For those people who do get, now I'll tell you as far as the theory goes, for a person who genuinely gets such a vision, uh, the Islamic understanding of this, and this is an extremely rare thing, extremely rare that Allah Subhanahu will unveil to somebody some piece of knowledge about what is going to happen in the future. The, the thing is, the rules that govern this is that number one, that person can never know with certainty because gashf is not with what we call, it's not tati, it's zanni, it's not a certain authoritative guaranteed proof in deen. It's just a possible source. So nobody can think that what I've been shown is going to happen definitively. They can just think it may possibly happen, all right? After it eventually happens, right, then the, the course of events may confirm something that they saw. How did this happen? Well, the way this is understood is actually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave a person a piece of knowledge that the person didn't have themselves and was not able to acquire themselves. So where did they get it from? They got it from the knowledge of Allah, right? Okay. The knowledge of Allah subhanahu exists outside of time and space. It's not it's actually incorrect to say Allah Ta'ala knows the future. There is no such thing called future for Allah subhanahu wa There's no such thing called future for Allah subhanahu wa Because He exists outside of time. So just imagine like on this board, imagine if the first third was your past and the middle third is your present and the last third is your future. But you can see the whole board in one shot, right? That's how Allah Ta'ala sees us. It's quite an amazing concept. Uh, it's not that Allah Ta'ala sees your future as clearly as He sees your present, as clearly as He saw your past. So something to think about when we sin also, and also something to think about when we pray, that the moment that we sin, Allah Ta'ala is simultaneously, so to speak, even that word doesn't properly apply to Allah because that, also, that implies a unity in time. And Allah Ta'ala is beyond time, right? But He also saw, or simultaneously, quote-unquote, simultaneously saw us praying and when we pray he also sees a sin so this is his hilm this is what is explained as his attribute of al-halim he is that being who knows so much about you that he could very be well within his right to punish you but he doesn't he holds back and lets this whole system of linear time play itself, play itself out in your life so when Allah Ta'ala gives a person a piece of knowledge in al-ham it's not knowledge of the future as far as Allah Ta'ala is concerned it's part of his knowledge which encompasses everything past, present, and future. So sometimes a person may see something about the future. But in reality, the people who actually see something like this, they will see something like this maybe once or twice in their entire lifetime. And such people on earth may be five or ten on earth. 
That's why with all statistical probability, your friend is not one of them. <laughs> Alright? Okay. But the number of people who think that they have such experiences, there's no shortage of that. There's no shortage of that. Alright? So, the point was to show you today that what Imam Rabbani is teaching, the people even who are those one or two of the billions, even they should negate it. Even they shouldn't be worried about it. So we have guaranteed, at least from our perspective, right, that that person who genuinely has a genuine experience and vision, he is being told that even he should, he should just forget it, ignore it. So if Imam al-Rabbani would tell that to somebody who may have themselves been a wali, then you could just sell the same thing to your friend. So that's, I can just bring your friend in the back, that actually we have been taught that even the experiences and visions that are true, we should ignore them and not worry about that, and we should focus more on the hidayah, getting hidayah, getting deen. Right? Okay, now one from this side. Yes? Yeah, these are not positions on what's the wajud, these are the three views regarding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the world. One was the view that Allah and the world are the same. And some people have used the term wahadu wajud to use that. The second was the view that Allah and the world are separate, but the world is a shadow of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the third view is that Allah and the world are separate completely, and the world is not even a shadow of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Nothing can be a shadow. Now then what Imam Rabbani explained that the term shadow doesn't mean creation. The term shadow, dhil in Arabic, can only be used for the ayat, sha'airullah that are on earth, the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on earth. Because he talks about that in Quran, Sha'irullah, and he himself has said Sha'irullah, he's made nisbah to himself, right? So he says the word dhil, shade, or shadow could only be applied to something like that, or like I had mentioned to you, the in way Allah Ta'ala is engaged in this world. So the way he sends his madad, his nusrat, his barakah, his fazl, his fez, his karam. Allah Subhanahu cannot be the same as creation. The throne issue is a bit separate, okay? That's a whole separate discussion, uh, and this is. Uh, there are ayat in the Quran where Allah SWT speaks about what is called in Arabic istiwa which means and it's really difficult to try to translate this in English because I personally feel that the meaning again you can only select a wording accurately when you really know the meaning and I don't think anybody knows the meaning of this so when they select words in English they're selecting words inadequately so some of them will say Allah is established on the throne he's settled on the throne he is his sovereignty emanates from above the throne so he's sovereign, means he's Malik, right? So his being Malik emanates from above the throne. All of these are just guesses in my opinion. We cannot really understand. So my, the position I follow in Akidah and Kalam is istiwa, is something that we believe in, just like we believe in Alif Lam Meen. We believe in everything in the Quran, but we say we don't know at all. That's what we call the Bila Kaif position, that we have no idea whatsoever what that means. Okay, so point was that what I wanted to say, Imam Rabbi is not saying that Allah Ta'ala and the world are separate because the world is under the throne and Allah Ta'ala is above the throne. It's not a spatial difference. It's not a spatial difference. It's not a location difference. Okay, one from this side. Okay, okay, so how do you go from 100 to 0, right? Okay. That's a very good question. Alright. There are two ways that this is being said. Okay. One way, which is accessible to everyone. And then there's a second way that is only accessible to a few people. Which is which covers the second part, why you said what you said, that you know, people like us, we aren't able to do that. You can do the first one. 
The first one means practicing zikr along with functioning in the world. So when you do zikr, and this is so 99% of the way the soul is taught today, is using this method. That you keep, you stay, you're still a university student. You keep working as a software programmer. You keep working as an English professor. You keep doing that. But now you insert, you add something additional to your day, which is a zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you keep working on the quality of that zikr. And then you try to increase in its quantity. And you reduce your sins, right? And you increase your sunnah. And you keep doing these things, you keep doing these things, doing these things. Each of these things will take down your attachment for what is unlawful in this world. And your awareness of what is unlawful in this world. For example, as a person does more zikr, more sunnah, has more taqwa, then they'll be able to lower their gaze more. Second, then they will start becoming unaware. They can actually say that, you know, today I went on the tube and didn't even realize. Before I would be able to say within two minutes who was the pretty women in the subway car. Now I sat there and I was so absorbed in my zikr, I have no idea even who is pretty. Right? So, they, so they're getting more and more absorbed in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? They could even change with even the same person. They can say, I'm a there's this woman at work, she's my colleague. Before I used to notice she's pretty. Now that I've started following sharia and sunnah and left other sins and made zikr, I still interact with her. She's still the secretary, let's say. Right? Or the boss, whatever. I mean, whatever she is. Right? But now I don't even notice, I actually don't notice her looks anymore. I'm completely oblivious to her. Right? So the person will keep increasing the quality of their zikr, and sometimes a bit more quantity, maybe one hour, maybe max two, three hours a day, right? But obviously they're still, they're still functioning in the world. But their attachment and love, love and attachment of the world, that's going from hundred to zero. So outward engagement is still there. But their inward engagement is going down. And obviously then, because the person is doing it along, it's going to take time. It's going to take years. How long is it going to take? It's going to take years using this method. Years. But that's okay, it takes years to get a two-bit BA, right? <laughs> that takes years, right? Doesn't it? So this is going to take years. Like, you can call it BA in zikr. <laughs> or BA in taqwa. Huh? Right? And it's the same thing. The harder a person works, they may get a distinction in their taqwa. They may get a second level in their taqwa. Yes, it's the same thing. Alright? The second way, which is today 1%, but in that time it was more, no doubt, was that a person would go for what we call khalwa. Khalwa means they would actually withdraw themselves from society at large. And due to certain reasons in Quran and Hadith, they would prefer 40 days or 4 months. But these are not set in stone. And actually the, in Tabliki Jamaat, they've taken it from Tasawwuf actually. The concept of 40 days and 4 months. So they would go in a period of khalwa, if seclusion from this world. The two sunnah precedents for this are, like I mentioned, the sunnah of the Prophet going to the cave in Mount Hira. And second sunnah of itikaf. Right? Because there's sunnah itikaf, which is the 10 days, last 10 days of the month of Ramadan. Right? And there's also nafli itikaf, which is part of deen. And you can do it anytime you want. So you can put it this way then, maybe because people are a bit unfamiliar with these terms, khalwa and chilla. They used to go into nafli itikaf for 40 days, or for 4 months, or for some other period of time. Because that, that's a cricket, that doesn't take years, right? They wanted to get it done faster. Just like, you know, just like in the dunya, you can do things part-time. So a person can say, okay, I'm doing this course part-time. So it's okay, you know, if I'm doing an LLB half-time, it'll take you six years. 
So what if I do it full time? It takes three years. So they think about it. They have to, you know, they have to look. And sometimes a person depends on money, depends on what hukukulibad are over them. But there were some people in that day and age who, while maintaining full hukukulibad, right? Just like sometimes a person goes for an intensive six-month course, right? Leaves everything, leaves their family, so they'll be back in six months, right? So they actually would go for that because that was a quicker. Some people got in 40 days. Some people would take four months. Imam Arbaan told you two and a half months, done. But that's because he did it, that's what he did day and night. So in that state, in that method, then what they do is they go into nafl itikaf. Just like in sunnah itikaf, nafl itikaf means that all you do is ibadah and zikr, tilawat, salah, ilm, dua, istighfar, durud, salawat, listening to bayan, dersi tafsir, dersi hadith, etc. That's all you do, just day and night, day and night. And they would do that, and that was a quicker way. So this was a clarification that I, I actually wanted to, I had tried to make in the beginning, but I couldn't make it in detail. And that was why, you know, I have to give it to them. I didn't give it to you. You should have taken it from me in lunch break. I have to give you the Bida, Bida workshop audio, which is about three and a half hours, three, three and a half hours, right? So that's our gift to all of you. That answers this question in detail. Let me make it clear, right? That following Quran, Sunnah, and Sharia, so if you remember when I gave that example, that the sawf is not something separate. Quran and Sunnah is the thing, right? That is the subject matter of deen. The sawf is a methodology that helps you internalize and follow that. In that methodology, there will be zikr practices that are not found in hadith. Just like in tajweed methodology, there are exercises given to do on your tongue which are not found in hadith. Just like in hadith methodology, there are categories and labels and terms and texts that are not found in hadith, right? Just like in tafsir. And these books of tafsir, I mean, that's probably the greatest example I could tell you. That people have this misconception, it's a very emotional concept. That if the Prophet didn't do it, it's not deen. And this whole workshop actually shows that Sahaba Ikram, and I've shown this from Bukhari and Muslim, that Sahaba Ikram in the lifetime of the Prophet and Sahaba Ikram after the Prophet passed away, used to engage in types of nafal ibadah and zikr, which the Prophet never taught them. And I've documented this clearly on the workshop with complete references. So, and this is why this is allowed because it's nafal ibadah. In fard ibadah, wajib ibadah, and sunnah ibadah, you cannot add anything other than what the Prophet himself did. But in nafal ibadah, and there, there are many types of nafal ibadah, but the two most prevalent are dhikr and dua. You can add. And sahaba themselves added in front of the Prophet and he approved it. And after the Prophet passed away, Sahaba added, and nobody has censored them. Right up to Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Qaymah, they have not censored them for that. Right? So, actually, when we talk about Salaf, the real understanding of Salaf Salihin means this. Whatever the Sahaba, Tabin, and Tabai Tabin allowed for themselves, that is allowed for us. So I've documented in that three and a half hour workshop that Sahaba, Tabin, and Tabai Tabin allowed for themselves and without anyone in the history of Islam ever censoring, reprimanding any one of them, they allowed for themselves to do new types of dhikr that were not found in hadith and make new types of dua that were not found in hadith. And the greatest example I'm saying, I will give you is tafsir. You will find tafsir written by Tabai Tabin and later Mufassirin. And they're telling you that the meaning of this verse is ABC. And there's no hadith that says the meaning of that verse is ABC. Right? 
if you were to confine your understanding of tafsir to just the hadith, so let's take Kitab al-Tafsir and the Sahih of Bukhari, it's about maybe 20 pages long. I mean, it depends on the font size and editions. It's very small. Those of you who studied Bukhari would remember, right? It's about 20 pages. Now, if you look at any tafsir that everybody respects, the great mufassirun, right? Take an early tafsir tabi. It's this big. It's like 20 volumes. Forget 20 pages. And if I said, show me that tafsir from the hadith, no way, you can't do it. So when tafsir al-Qur'an has been allowed by the entire ummah, that you can make tafsir and say things that the Prophet never said about Qur'an, why could you not engage in nafil zikr and nafil dua? So the definition of bidah when it comes to nafil ibadah is not that is it found in hadith or not. That's the definition of bidah if you want to check farz, wajib, or sunnah ibadah. For nafil ibadah, the definition of bidah is it against sharia. If it's something against the teachings of Sharia, then it's haram. As long as there's nothing against Sharia, right? So that is what the Mashaikh of all the Silsas teach. Definitely, 100% I tell you, and I don't want to leave any misrepresentation. Naqshibani Mujaddidi Silsala teaches many zikr that have been derived from Quran, derived from Hadith. And also teaches zikr that have been designed by different Mashaikh over time. And those names of those mashayikh are in what is called a quote-unquote sajra. So just like in hadith, I have a sanat, right? And different muhaddithin have commented on hadith differently over time. So for example, the Sahih of Bukhari, there are four major commentaries on the Sahih, right? By Askalani, Aini, Kirmani, and Kastanani. And many times, many times, not always, but not seldom, quite a few, I would say quite often, they disagree on the meaning of that hadith, Right? So you have hadith commentators giving different meanings of hadith and we all have sanad and chains that go through them. Right? So just like that, you will have different methods of doing zikr. So the criteria in evaluating whether a zikr is acceptable is number one, that no one should claim to you that sunnah. If they claim it's a sunnah way of doing zikr, then they have to show you hadith. If they claim it's farz or wajib way of doing zikr, then they have to show you even more. Right? So number one, they must view it to be nafil. They must understand that this is nafil ibadah. They can do it very regularly, but they have to view it as nafil. And number two, there must be nothing in that zikr that is against the sharia. So like the music, the dance, right? The things that uh, Imam Arbani was pointing out. Alright? Did that clarify the issue? Uh, yeah, uh, just because I was learning under one shaykh, and he um, Basically, every single Muslim actually has a shajra going back to the Prophet. Every Muslim. So you converted at the hands of some Muslim whose father, great grandfather, great grandfather, somebody, he also must have converted at the hands of some Muslim who also converted, everybody then converted at the hands of Sahabu, who all accepted Islam at the hands of the Prophet right? So in that sense, everybody has a chain. We may not know it, right? We may not know it, but everybody has a chain. We're all converts, or descendants of converts. And that's the chain that everybody has. Because Sahaba were all converts, right? Now, so everybody is part of a chain. Everybody's part of the Ummah. So being part of the Ummah, or having teachers, or anything, nothing makes a person beyond error, Right? The only thing that makes a person beyond error is adherence to the Sharia. So, in other words, if the person, you know, for example, I can give you people who studied Hadith who make mistakes. So if I was to ask, but they studied Hadith of Bukhari under a Hadith scholar who studied Hadith scholar, 
So how do they make a mistake? I'll say they have a nafs. <laughs> their nafs, the same nafs that made everybody else sin, made them sin. And the fact that their nafs made them sin is not a stain on their teachers at all, or, or that we should stop studying hadith, or somehow the teaching of hadith is flawed. Uh, it just means that this person didn't successfully purify their bad nafs. Right? Okay, let's see. So we have not received anything from the women, actually. Oh, you did give me one thing. I'm sorry. One minute. I should get some. Okay. Why does Sheikh Ahmed Sunni reform Ibn Arabi's concept of the wujud into the shahud? But this I explain in detail. What is, what is the difference between these two concepts? So this we've already done in detail. Uh, before the break, this may be a written question from one of the men who came after the break, right? Yes, Nika? That's my kash. <laughs> no, that's my experience. This we discussed before. This we discussed before, right? But with Shah Balila's opinion, views on this debate and discussion, at this point we're not going to, like I said, I just want you to do uh, what, ask me questions on the things that I've taught. Uh, there are different people who teach the Muktabat in different ways. I'm not teaching it using an intellectual history approach. Uh, there are people who actually don't even do zikr at all who teach Muktabat and Rabbani. Uh, <laughs> right? So I'm offering something different here. Okay? Uh, just very briefly he tried to join the two but he wasn't joining the two sides he wasn't joining the side that Imam al-Rabbanat was critiquing he was trying to join like I told you those Chishti Mashaykh who actually interpreted Ibn Arabi's words in such a way that Wahdat al-Wajud did not mean union and unity with God so that's a different type of Wahdat al-Wajud now they use the same term but the, what they meant by that term was different and what Imam Rabbani, as you can see, because he keeps using the word union, right? He is attacking that wahatatul that term, which is being used to represent the view that a human being unites with Allah. So later on, there were some people who they felt rightly or wrongly, that they were also being unfairly attacked because they used the term wahatatul in a different way, not to explain uh, the unity with Allah. So what were they using it to mean? So Shabaliullah basically advocated their side that they were using the term Wahdatul Wajud for the same meaning that Sheikh Ahmed Hindi was using the term Wahdatul Shuhud. So what they used to call Wajudi was the same thing that he called Shuhudi, so there was no real difference. Alright? Okay. Alright. So the question is that if... Uh, I'm going to sort of... Uh, okay. General question. Uh, I'm going to make the question a bit more general and then I'll answer the specific one. So the general question is that if these extra zikr practices are beneficial, why did the Prophet himself not tell the Sahaba to do it? So you will find, uh, for example, I could say the same thing about Tajweed, that if these Tajweed exercises that the guards have come up with are so beneficial, why did the Prophet not tell the Sahaba to do it? Or, like the best example I gave you, is if all of these tafsirs that the whole ummah reads, every single person who becomes an alim in the world has to go through these classical tafsir. And all of this class of 10 volume, 15 volume, 20 volumes, if I was to ask you the question that if those meanings and understandings and explanations of Quran are so beneficial that you feel it's required, required to become an alim that you must study tafsir, why didn't the Prophet teach all these things to Sahaba? What would your answer be to that? One answer would be emotional, you're totally right. We've been duped. All the mafasirun are bidatis. That's one answer, right? I mean, and the people take that answer about zikr. 
People take that answer about zikr and tasawuf that we've been totally fooled, right? All this tasawuf and zikr is all been out. Take it all out. So why don't you take that answer, that same approach with tafsir? In fact, I would say tafsir, I mean, zikr was nafal. Everybody agrees it's nafal. There's no dispute on that. But tafsir, that's Quran. You're telling me what the meaning is of kalamullah? And you can't give me a hadith to back up what you're saying? If I use the line, show me the hadith, brother, on the Mufassirun, Mufassirun will be finished. It's finished. All tafsir is finished except for 20 pages. Then what would we do? Well, people don't think because it's a very emotional thing. I know it's very difficult for people who accept Islam or converts because they, they don't know how to trust, right? It's a big, it's a trust issue. It's a trust issue. And it definitely, then, it does seem like a safer path. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way, because zikr is nothing. So if a person comes to me and says, look, I'm only going to do what's in the hadith, I'd say it's fine. I would even say you, I would actually tell you, you could even throw out that tafsir. For you, as an individual, if you only want to follow the words of Quran and the words of hadith, it, I, I don't feel you will get access to the complete hidayah of deen. But can you get sufficient hidayah of deen to save yourself from jannah? Yes, I think you could. I think you could. But, but I would respond to the question that there are things of great benefit in that tafsir. If you look at the Hadith commentary, Ibn Hajar Asqalani wrote that this, he writes like sometimes he writes pages of the meaning of Hadith. So somebody says to me, why didn't the Prophet tell us that was the meaning of his words? <laughs> why didn't the Prophet tell us that? So how, how can I accept Ibn Hajar is going to tell me, Ibn Hajar is going to tell me what the Prophet meant? Who is he? Show me the Hadith, brother Ibn Hajar. You're saying this is the meaning of this hadith, show me the hadith. So Ibn Hajar will have to go away. <laughs> you have to throw out all the muhaddithin. So once you're done throwing out all the mufassirin and the muhaddithin, then you can come to the fuqaha and the sawaf. But the deceptions they make is throw out the fuqaha and the scholars of the sawaf and they don't touch the mufassirin and muhaddithin. <laughs> Something to think about. If you ask me, that's a graver sin to speak about Quran, to speak about hadith without prophetic backing. So it's not a sin. It's not a sin. He said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has continued understandings of Quran, but the subject matter is fixed. The subject matter is fixed. You know, I'll tell you something, it's gonna it's gonna shock you, and you may not be ready to digest this. But if you think about it calmly, calmly you will realize it is factually true. There will be, let's say, whoever you think is the greatest of seer scholar. Whoever is hypothetically, we cannot even pinpoint who that person is, but let's say a person was at that rank. He may know certain things about certain ayahs that not every sahaba even knew. That not even every sahaba even knew. It's possible. It's possible. So the question is, is that what is that amount of hidayah that you need for salvation? Right? And what is the entire pool of hidayah? So the entire pool of hidayah is very vast. I'll give you another, give, okay, maybe give you something you can digest easier. I don't think there's any mufassir alive or dead or, or any sahaba, really, who could say they knew every single meaning of Quran. Right? Let's just take all the tafsir books that are written and let's say I take, a, you know, I don't take a name, but let's say I take any, any sahaba. Right? Why? Right? And let's say Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq Because you don't actually need to know every single possible meaning and grammatical and linguistic analysis of every single letter and word to get hidayah. The asal is hidayah. Right? 
The worlds of ilm and zikr are very vast. You will need part of that to get hidayah. No one can say they know everything about ilm, and no one can say they know everything about zikr. And don't you see in Quran, Allah Ta'ala showed Sayyidina Musa Islam himself that even you, you are the Nabi of the time. At his time he was a Nabi. Even you don't know everything. <laughs> You're going to have to go to Khizr. <laughs> and the Khizr are going to do things that you don't understand. Right? And he was a Nabi. Sayyidina Musa Islam is superior. So superiority is based on taqwa. You see, Allah Ta'ala said in Quran, Inna akramakum indallahi atkakum. So the superiority of Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq to every single other Muslim is his taqwa. It's not because he's the greatest muhaddith and greatest mufassir or greatest zikr person. It's not like that. Or the greatest qari that he had the best tajweed ever in the history of Islam. That's not what it is. It's his taqwa. So you need to... Zikr again is not an end. It's a means to taqwa. So however much zikr a person needs to get their taqwa, they should partake of it. Alright? So, so she had specifically asked the question then, if the naqshimandi zikr of the heart is so beneficial, why didn't the Prophet do it himself or tell us to do it? So that's what I was saying. There are things that are actually beneficial, whether it's in the ilm of tafsir, ilm of hadith, ilm of fiqh, ilm of usul. Just look at the usul of ijtihad. The Prophet didn't teach us that that's what anybody's ijtihad. It doesn't matter Abu Nifa's usul, Shafi's usul, Malik's usul, Ahmad ibn Hamad's usul. Nobody's usul. Now what are usul of ijtihad? It's the way of understanding sharia. And the Prophet didn't teach us that. Now imagine if I tried to trick you up with that. You'd be like, oh my God, how can Nabiya Kareem not teach us the way of understanding sharia? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inspires the mujtahideen with their ijtihad. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inspires the mufassirun with their tafsir. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inspires the muhaddithin with their hadith commentary. And just like that, Allah ta'ala inspires the mashayikh of the sawaf with the nafil zikr practices that they teach. The giver of hidayah is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One, the greatest two ways Allah ta'ala gave hidayah is through the book and through the sunnah. But Allah Ta'ala continues to give hidayah. That's why you say, Aydina, say you wouldn't need to say Aydina. You would just say, Allah Ta'ala, make me read Quran and Hadith. You ask for hidayah. So Allah Ta'ala put hidayah. And Ibn Taymiyyah received hidayah. There's, you know, Majmu'ah Fatah Ibn Taymiyyah, depending on the prince and Mrs. 32 volumes. Not everything he said has a hadith to back it up. He also did types of ijtihad. His ijtihad is also part of hidayah from Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. It's part of deen. Alright? Okay, so we had more than two from the men, right? So second one from the women. What sort? Uh, this is a long question. Ah, okay. This I'll answer, but this I'll answer at the end. All right. This is. Can you give us some practical steps? I'm not done with the theory yet. I've got another. <laughs> we got some more sessions to go, but then I will give you the practical step at the end. I have put that on there. I don't where did that schedule go? But I will be answering. The question is, what are the steps? Uh, you know, that I said there were two ways. One was to go into the khalwa, to go into naflitikaf, and do this more intensely. And the other way is to do it along with your university professional life. So what are the practical things we can do along with that? Inshallah, I'll be explaining that uh, towards the end. So we take a break. All right. And again, you have a 15-minute break. So it's about 4.03. So we should be back at about 4.18, inshallah.